Joe presents TKO. Welcome to season two of TKO here on Joe. A massive thank you to all of you supported last year. Amazing 2019. We're hoping to make 2020 even better. Was that your phone? That is a mistake from me early early doors. Sorry about that. That's all right. We'll just put, we'll push on. I'm incredibly pleased to say we've, we've got a man joining us who I never quite expected. That's it. Phone's on silent, everyone. I never expected that we would have on TKO, WWE wrestling legend Kurt Angle. First of all, thank you so much for, for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. So you're over here with um, WWE promoting the new deal with BT Sport. Yes, sir. Um, exclusively in the UK for, for 2020. Right. Um, a busy day for you. Yeah, we start early morning and we're going to go out. I think tonight we just have like a a gathering at BT and uh, I think it ends at 11 o'clock. But we start early morning and this is normal for, for sports entertainers. Yeah. We do a lot of media. Yeah. So growing up, I mean, I was a, a huge wrestling fan. I know you didn't have Sky in your house. Yeah, so I was like a, and a young kid back home. I was a fan of wrestling, but it was on the satellite channels. And I didn't have Sky, so I didn't get to watch it as much as other guys. Yeah. But I was obviously aware of how big it was. Did you know when you first joined? Because obviously in this, this day and age, social media, the internet, you know how truly global the company is and how far your reach is. But were you aware in the, the late 90s just how many people were kind of watching you worldwide? No, I, um, I didn't watch wrestling. I didn't grow up watching it. I... Started watching it when I started. <laughs> so when I signed with the company in late 98, that's when I started watching. I do want to come on to those days, but if it's okay with you, I'd actually quite like to find out a little bit about your amateur wrestling mm-hmm. career. Because as a professional sportsman, that's something that you were known for as part of your WWE character. Mm-hmm. But actually, that was a huge part of your, your early career and your early life. You were in a family of wrestlers. Your brothers all wrestled yes. too. Is that right? Yeah, I had four brothers. They all wrestled. They were all very successful. I was the youngest. Didn't really like wrestling to start with. I I liked team sports. I didn't like it depending solely on me. But the more I watched my brothers and growing up, I started liking wrestling and I started getting better. And eventually I got better than they were. And then I became the best in my family by winning the Olympic gold medal. Yeah, because wrestling in America's bit of a kind of high school institution right because we don't have it it starts when you're in elementary school does it yeah almost every school has a program right so elementary junior high high school college it's it's very big over there so it's it's part of our culture because they a lot of people call for boxing to be put into schools as part of the curriculum it it used to be in the schools and there's there's a call for it to come back and instills obviously a lot of discipline and, and everything else and you see the the problems that society has these days with knife crime and gang culture and everything else i think that programs like that wrestling in the states and boxing programs in the states or in the uk are only going to help matters mm. what point did you or what age did you think this could really be serious for me as a career i would say around 13 14 i started having a lot more success and and then I got to the high school level and I had a lot of success there and it just carried over to college. And I didn't really think about Olympics when I was younger. I just thought about that season and if I could win the championship that year. And every year I continued to win. Which Olympics did you win? 1996. Yeah. Atlanta? Yes. Atlanta, yeah. Well, is that your proudest moment out of everything you've done in your career? Oh, Olympic yeah. gold medal yeah, for your country? It's, it, 
surpasses anything. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, even bigger than anything I've accomplished in WWE. Yeah, yeah. I imagine. Yeah, that was a kind of golden Olympics for the US team. I mean, of course, it was the home Olympics, but yeah. you put up Michael Johnson, you'd like uh, the basketball team, Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal and Akeem Elijah won those guys, Gail Devers, even um, Andre Agassi won the tennis, some real legends yeah. in that team. Yeah. What was it like to be part of that in that Olympic village, seeing those people? It was pretty cool. Uh, you know, you knew it was special when you went to opening ceremonies and you saw the athletes there and the guys you mentioned, they were the guys and girls that were participating that were already professionals and uh, they made it, you know, viable for pros to end up competing in the Olympics. And so you saw basketball and tennis and, you know, now even golf. Uh, mm -hmm. So the, the pros are going and winning medals as well now. So that was the start of it. Because one of the things with the Olympics, boxing is one of the only sports where there is a kind of, there's another trajectory and another path if you yeah. win a medal. For a lot of sports, certainly minority sports, that don't necessarily get a lot of TV coverage. Right. The Olympic gold medal can often be the kind of end of the road. There isn't anywhere else, right. so to speak, to, yeah. to go. Wrestling could very well be one of those sports. It is, yeah. And so for you, that recognition... Well, now MMA, so... <laughs> that, that right. The, the yeah. question I was going yeah. to ask you, would that if MMA had been a, as big then yeah. as it was now, would you have took that path rather than the WWE? Without a doubt, yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It wasn't... At that point, UFC was struggling. They offered me a 10-fight deal for 150 grand, and that was their biggest contract they ever offered. This was in 97... And uh, it didn't sound very good to me. So I decided to go pro wrestling. And by 2001, 2002, UFC was kicking in high gear, but I was already drawn into the pro wrestling scene. So how did the, what was the chain of events that led you to the door of, of the WWE? Well, in 1996, Vince McMahon offered me a contract. I flew up to meet with him and I wasn't interested. I had a lot of people tell me, you know, you grew up, you never watched it, uh, it's fake, what you did was real. A lot of my peers were telling me, don't do it. So my agent threw the contract away, and I'd say in 1998, I started watching, uh, watching uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, and how athletic they were and how entertaining they were. I thought, man, I could do this. I think it'd be a lot of fun. And UFC at the time wasn't going anywhere, so I went with uh, WWE. What was the the early sort of uh, memories? Because I've, I imagine wrestling is one of the toughest sports there is, certainly amateur wrestling. Mm. But I've read if, in a few places that your early days of pro wrestling were, were incredibly tough. What were your first memories of some of the first lessons and training sessions you did? Well, the first day when I uh, started training, I quit. I took three bumps and my neck, the pain I was getting... And my neck and back, it was like, this isn't normal. You don't, it's like self-abuse, mm. you know. Um, we bump on plywood. It's a lot like this. And uh, there's no spring underneath. Um, it is self-mutilation. You're, you're basically beating that crap out of yourself because you're allowing people to throw you around and take your head off with a clothesline. And the object you're bumping on is plywood. So yeah. wow. it was very abusive and... Um, the first day, I, I didn't like it, and I decided to hang in there. I came back the next day, and I continued on. I got used to bumping and, and used to the pain, so eventually uh, it didn't bother me as much. But 
I'm paying for it now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, see, like a generation before ours, my dad's generation, they would not really look favorably upon the WWE. Mm. But what you guys do, like you take some serious stick to your body. Yeah. yeah. Some serious injuries and stuff. It's, you know, you're a two-weight world champion and you, you've taken as many punches to the head and body as, as anyone want to take in a lifetime. Mm. What is... What is pain to you guys? How do you manage pain? Do you ever get used to it? Does it ever become less painful? Or do you just become used to living in that place? It's something you get used to. And as a young boxer, I think Jimmy Moore, my trainer, has spoke about this and said that you can tell from a very young age whether someone has it or not. And it's normally a kid sparring. And if they take a punch in the nose and they don't cry and they punch back, it's like, you know, this kid might have it. But the pain, it's like, I don't know, obviously adrenaline carries you through a lot of it, but it's like a, getting a punch in the face is not like a real specific... If you punch me in the arm now, I would feel more pain than actually a punch in the head in a fight. It's a strange sensation. It's not nice, but it's very, very hard. I've been asked to describe that loads of times, yeah, totally. and I, I've not been able to describe it. In terms of pain, Kurt, amateur wrestling, pro wrestling, what are the worst kinds of pain that, that you can describe, and how do you deal with those? I think the worst pain I had, and I still have it now, is an amateur wrestling right before the Olympics. I got thrown on my head and I broke my neck. Mm. And um, I didn't know it, and I kept wrestling. And that day I ended up winning um, the U.S. Open, and that put me in a good position to make the Olympic team for the Olympic trials. Uh, it made me the top guy, so I didn't have to wrestle the mini tournament to face the winner of the mini tournament. I was the guy that the mini tournament faced. So I, I, um, I couldn't get passed by any doctor. No doctor would pass or would, would allow me to wrestle. So I eventually found a doctor and he said, the only thing you can do, you can't train. You just, we'll just stick you in a neck with Novocaine and you won't feel the pain. And he was right. Every match I had at the trials and the Olympics, I got 12 shots of Novocaine in the back of my neck. Wow. Couldn't feel it for about an hour. I'd go out and wrestle, and then an hour later, I'd be in a lot of pain again. So you won the Olympic Games with a broken neck? Yeah, yeah. That's insane. That's yeah. one of my quotes in WWE. That was Actually, your fight. That was your yeah. stick, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I broke both my hands in my last fight. <laughs> I which, see that. Yeah, which, right. isn't, which isn't ideal, but and it wasn't wasn't nice. But it's hard to imagine winning the pinnacle of your sport, the Olympic Games, to be competing against the top guys in the world with a broken neck. That is. That's unreal. Well, I can't imagine boxing with broken hands. No. no. Well, you, well, I called you a few weeks ago and you said, this is the most pain I think I've ever been in. The right yeah. hand especially. So I had to have a little bit of bone removed from the right hand, but there was a a tendon that had ripped and it needed stitched together. So oh. that, that hand was giving me more pain than the left hand, which has seven screws and a plate in it now. Jeez. But just because I had to have some work done to the tendon, mm. it was uh, it wasn't wasn't nice. I want to ask you a question. Did you know ahead of time that you were going to be suffering after your career from the injuries? Would you go back and would you do it all over again? I would do it all over again because obviously I've enjoyed every bit of my career and I've been very successful, more successful than I probably would have imagined. Mm. I've been lucky enough that. My injuries, although in my last fight I broke my hands, but previous to that mm. I haven't really suffered too many injuries. But I would 100% hand on heart do it all over again. Mm. What about you? I don't know. 
I, I mean, I'm, I'm hurting pretty badly. My knees, my back, my neck. Sometimes I think about, you know, would I go back? My quality of life right now sucks. So I do have a lot of suffering. I had a painkiller addiction that I overcame about six years ago. And, you know, staying clean and struggling the way I have been, it's, it's very difficult. Was there a lot of pressure, even when you had injuries, week in and week out, to go and perform? And did you ever feel that you couldn't say no? Was that part of the problem? No, I, I nobody ever forced me to do anything. There were a lot of times, you know, I had a great doctor that uh, he gave me, uh, had three neck surgeries, and um, he was very easy to manipulate. So, you know, when I broke my neck and I had surgery, I would talk him into clearing me to go back early. And uh, at the time, WWE didn't have their uh, wellness policy set where they had their doctor clear you. We would go to our own doctor. And um, I was able to do that a couple of times where I shouldn't have been back, and I did. So I broke my neck four more times in WWE, and uh, it caused me to go into a downward spiral, painkiller addiction, and just almost ruined my life. So it, it was it was very difficult. Can I just say, you have one of the strongest, <laughs> biggest looking knacks I've yeah. ever seen as well. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Break that. That's what kept me in the game, yeah. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. So how many times are you performing? When, when, you were, when you were wrestling, twice a week you'd be performing? Five days a week. You were performing five days yeah, a week? we would go Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And then we would fly home Tuesday. We'd have uh, Wednesday, we'd fly back to whatever city was going to have the event Thursday. So we only had one day off a week where we were able to go home. And uh, if we flew overseas, we would usually stay overseas for a week and then come back and do our tour for another five days. So I I wouldn't get home if I went overseas for for two weeks. But we usually only had a day off. That was it. So how much... How much practice goes into the choreography of, a, of an average match Monday to Friday, would you say? When you're a pro, you can put it together in five minutes. Really? A 30-minute match. Does it help if you have someone opposite you that, that's kind of highly experienced too? You better. If you don't, they don't belong in the business. So yeah. it's there's a lot of work to it. But we also have a lot of rules to keep it safer. Everything we do, you know, if we're going to work a body part, it's always the left leg or the left arm. Uh, headlock, you always take it with the left arm. Um, you know, you do anything physical, you, you use your, your right side. So we all know where we need to be positioned in order to take bumps and and feed for the wrestler that's beating you up, I should say. So the, a lot of rules keep it safer, and um, you have to go by that because if you didn't, everybody would get injured every yeah. match. There was a video that Chris sent me of you... I'm not sure who it was Chris against. Chris Benoit in the cage. But you claimed to oh, the top yeah. of the cage. <laughs> that was dumb. The moon back so. flipped. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. How high is that cage? 15 thing? feet? 20 feet? I believe it's 12. It's 12 feet. Yeah. But How much standing. practice goes into that though? Uh, there's no practice. I just did. That was the first time I ever did it, and I just did it. Just so people at home know, so this is you, you do a, a like a moonsault, back, yeah. essentially a backflip mm-hmm. off the top. So your feet are 12 feet above. Your head is probably yeah. closer to 18 feet in the air. About yeah. you, you backflip. Mm-hmm. He obviously he moves, yeah. and you land flat on your stomach. Yeah, I blew my knee out. I had to have ner- surgery after that. So that was a that was a huge mistake and it's something that wasn't necessary nobody forced me to do it i just thought it'd be cool to you know hit a spot like that i wanted to light the house on fire and 
you know, Chris and I did that that night and I regret it. <laughs> serious yeah. athleticism, but it's also serious balls just to do that. Like, yeah. that is unreal. watching it. Yeah, unreal. Yeah. The hard part, and th- this is where even he would have a problem. The hard part is allowing them to throw you around, allowing them to beat you up and I was so used to nobody being able to do anything to me it's it like uh, in boxing an example would be of course he can take a punch or he wouldn't be world champion but imagine just allowing them to punch mm. you in the face as hard as they can as many times as they want that's the hard part about it is you're putting your body through abuse you're allowing someone just to beat you up mm. and it's very very grueling on the body I also think people probably underestimate the physical strain of picking up and slamming guys of, of the size of the people you were working well, with. Well, there's a lot of illusion. We help each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we jump for each other. We, you know, you, you want to make it look clean. So uh, not only are you getting beat up, but you're helping them beat you up. So yeah. it's an, there's an art to it, yeah. Wow. In your, your amateur career, you were training at the, the Foxcatcher facility. Yes. Now, obviously, that's a, a name that I think a lot of people in, in this country will know from the film. Uh, with Channing Tatum and Mark Ruffalo. And I, I guess it's probably sad in many ways that the, that name has become synonymous just with the event because yeah. I presume for you, it did a lot for you in terms of your preparation for... It was the best club in the world. I right. wouldn't want to go medal without that club. Yeah. So there's a story behind this. I know you've watched this, the documentary. I just watched the documentary the on Netflix okay. um, recently, Team Foxcatcher. Yeah. Yes, yes. An amazing documentary. Just so much going on. Yeah, it was it was crazy. The the toughest part was we all knew John was a little weird. We all knew that he would do some crazy stuff and we just kind of turned our heads and said, he's funding us, so yeah. Let's just, you know, let's hang mm-hmm. in there at least till the Olympics and even Dave Schultz, you know, God bless him. He was my coach. He was the greatest wrestler I ever trained with. He was getting ready to leave cuz he saw John unraveling. But he didn't want to leave until the Olympics came around because he was training all of us, and he didn't want to leave us high and dry. So he was just going to wait until the Olympics, which was six months later, and uh, John killed him. It's just, uh, it was a very sad story. I'm just going to rewind for people that don't know the story. So John DuPont, from the DuPont family, one of the wealthiest families in America since like the mid-19th century from the gunpowder trade, and they had this 1,000-acre estate which wasn't the same state that you grew up in. Is that, am I right in saying that? No, same state, different city. Right. I was from uh, Pittsburgh, that was Philadelphia. But in terms of your, everywhere you could have been, it was actually geographically quite convenient for you, given what you were doing. And John DuPont, of course, was this was billionaire. He was, he was a, I suppose, philanthropist, and he was very eccentric. Mm. He decided to self-fund this mm. Foxcatcher, the facility for wrestling that right. he called the Foxcatcher, on the farm of the estate. So when did you first become aware that this facility would be open and available to you? How old were you, do you know? I was in college. I was a freshman in college, and they recruited me. For some reason, being that young, very few wrestlers became members of Foxcatcher at that age. Uh, they saw me and knew that I was special. So they recruited me. They brought me in. And even when I was in college, I went to a a little school in Pennsylvania. So I did a lot of my training at Foxcatcher in in college. It enabled me to win two NCAA championships. I had training with the best facility, the best wrestlers in the world. John had all the best wrestlers in the world fly from all over to train there. So we had the best of the best. And... It was 
it was easy to train there. Did DuPont pick the guys or was there people associated <laughs> to him that picked the wrestlers that, that he wanted on his team? Honestly, I don't think John was capable of knowing who was world-class and who mm. wasn't. I think that John wanted to be. I think that John, you know, I'll give you an example. He started wrestling and then he started this world championships for over 50-year-olds and you know, he wanted to wrestle and, you know, a lot of guys at Foxcatch were like, he's horrible. He can't, can't do anything. So they started uh, funding these tournaments where John would go there and these retired wrestlers would wrestle and one of the coaches for Foxcatch would pay the wrestler to lose. <laughs> it was, I mean, I was in Bulgaria once and John was so bad. He kept making mistakes and the, the guy was getting points and the guy was trying to lose and he kept, he was winning, <laughs> you know, it was comical, but everybody in the stadium knew that the fix was on. There were 10,000 fans there and they were cheering for Don, John. Did he know? No, he didn't know. Wow. And uh, the thing is, uh, he funded the Bulgarian wrestling team. So being in Bulgaria, all the fans knew that. So they were cheering for him to win and it was, it was ridiculous, but this is the kind of stuff that we dealt with. And, um, you know, John John funded us. John paid me to wrestle. And if I didn't get that money, I probably would have had to retire and find a job. Mm -hmm. You hear that from so many boxes, don't you? I mean, our, our <clears throat> amateur boxing system. Olympic level, especially for... Right, yeah. yeah. Ours is lottery funded and that yeah. funding gets allocated to the best maybe 20 boxers every mm -hmm. four years. Mm -hmm. And everyone else has to kind of either turn professional or hope that by some miracle, three or four people get injured. Well, yeah, that's kind of what happened with me. I, I missed, I didn't get selected for Ireland to go to the Olympic qualifiers, but it was at a stage where I didn't have any money. There was guys being funded from the Irish team I wasn't one of them and I had to make a decision like I want to continue boxing I would love to go to the Olympic Games but I have no money and I had oh. to turn professional and at the start it's very very hard I've been I've been very lucky in my career that I've done pretty well and been successful but it's so hard for probably 99% of fighters in our sport mm. Yeah, that's a shame. Boxers in the United States struggle. Yeah. It's, it's tough. Uh, I really believe it should be a school sport. Sports like boxing and judo suffered for so long mm. in the United States because the only way you could be successful is joining a club and paying a club to train you. It was easy to be a wrestler in the United States because it was funded by the schools and we were always taken care of, but um, I can't imagine being in a sport like boxing where you have no money, and if you're good enough to be a pro, you're going to probably do that over fighting the Olympics. And it's a shame because, yeah. you know, I think, honestly, the pros should be able to fight in the Olympics now. Every other sport does it, but mm. for some reason, boxing keeps that very sacred, mm. you know. You mentioned uh, Dave Schultz. Of course, he was Olympic gold medalist from 84 in LA um, in the 75 kilo category. And he went on to be kind of your, your coach. And I guess for you, that must have seemed a dream come true to have that facility available to you at the time. How often were you going up there? And was it live-in accommodation or did you go there daily and come home? It was a four and a half hour drive. So I would stay at the facility. Um, they had a bunch of houses on the farm. So, you know, and John would... Um, stock the houses with food. We would have um, a cleaning lady that would make our meals and clean the house, and every house had one. It was a really cool situation. So I would go there, even in college, I would train there six months of the year at least, half the year, and, and uh, 
the other half of the year I would commit to my school. But they even knew, Kurt, you need in order to get better, you need to go to Foxcatcher and do your thing and come back and compete. So I trained more Foxcatcher than anywhere else. Wow. And in 1995, you became world champion. Mm-hmm. Did you go into the Atlanta Olympics as the favorite? No. FILA, the world governing body of wrestling, um, they felt that I was a fluke. And uh, it was my first world championship. Usually you don't win a world title your first world championship. So, And it was the most competitive world championship. Um, the world championships before the Olympics, the year before the Olympics, is always the most competitive because guys are coming out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Even out of retirement. And they, they won a, a feeder tournament before the Olympics. So I, I won that, you know, probably the most competitive worlds in my weight class. Wow. Yeah. And then six months later, you, well, this is January, so this is six mm-hmm. months before the Olympic Games. I read that you were actually going to go to Foxcatcher and you spoke to Dave Schultz. I left that- him a message the day he was killed, probably right around the same hour. It was around one o'clock in the afternoon. Dave didn't answer the phone and I left him a message, told him I was coming the next day. So I didn't hear from him. And then my mother called me when I was at a college training, a local college, and she said, turn on the TV. And I turned it on. I saw Dave, picture of Dave. How did you feel when you saw that? I was in shock. I I couldn't believe it. I I literally thought he was in a hunting accident. I didn't know that John just straight up killed him. You know, uh, it was was tough. I I didn't know what I was going to do. I... I knew that Foxcatcher would probably come to an end. It did not, unfortunately, uh, because uh, John's lawyers thought if we continued getting paid by him, we were taking advantage of him and that we were the reason he did what he did. So I immediately quit, and um, I was unfunded. A week later, Nancy Schultz called me and said, Kurt, I heard you quit Foxcatcher. Thank you for doing that. I have a lot of sponsors that want to start the Dave Schultz Wrestling Club, and we would like you to be the first member. Wow. And what were you getting paid? We'll give you that money. And I was like, wow. I wasn't getting a lot, but I told her I don't want money, and she she insisted. So I told her the price, and she gave it to me. She funded me till, till the Olympics. For her to have that presence of mind yeah. so soon after losing her husband yeah, is yeah. unreal. Yeah, It is unreal, yeah. Wow. She wanted to do something for Dave right away, immediately. She seemed incredibly grateful for the the work and the diligence that went into the film with Mark Ruffalo. And Mm -hmm. I know that he was very conscientious of doing justice to to Dave's memory. He he did. He He did, did, right? Yes, yes. I wasn't crazy about uh, the way they portrayed Mark. Mark was a lot different. He He was a different breed. He, you know, there were a lot of... I guess they made it look like he was having a homosexual relationship with John, which was not true. Um, There were a few things in the film that weren't true. John's mother wasn't alive. He wasn't allowed to fund a wrestling program when his mom was alive. She wouldn't allow it. So when she died, that's when he started. But even Dave and Mark weren't at the club at the same time either. So they did a few things to spice it up. But Mm. for the most part, it was true. But there were some things that were just... That makes sense. It's hard when you know the historical accuracies and yeah, you know that yeah. they have to do certain things for Hollywood to make sure, things work, but sure, it's, yeah. it is difficult when it doesn't fit the actual memory of what happened. Right, right. Um, 
What about the portrayal by Steve Carell of, of John Dupont? Because he comes across almost as kind of sedated. He was pretty accurate. Was it? I mean, it, it's hard to be John Dupont because I know John, but he probably did as good as anybody could have done. I'd say him and Ruffalo were, were dead on. I yeah. still haven't seen the movie, by the way. I watched the documentary, but I have to watch the movie. What did you... So talk to me, because I haven't seen the documentary. So what was the kind of... What were your biggest takeaways from that? Um, that this John Dupont character was just... He just seemed like very eccentric, but I think the guys were kind of just letting him do his own thing because they were being funded and he was looking after them. And not really thinking that anything that was going to happen was going to happen, but there was a there was a situation where didn't he pull a gun on another yeah, guy before it? There were warning signs. Yeah, yeah. and and I, I hate saying that because it makes it sound like that Dave was taking advantage of him and everybody else was, but John was pretty coherent most of the time. He just did some stuff that just didn't make sense. I, I remember when he had the 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 president of Fila at his club and. He told him to get in the car, and he gave him an airline ticket and said, welcome to Balkan Airlines, because he was obsessed with Bulgaria. So John got in the car, and he drove it down a hill. Instead of going left where the road continues, he went straight into the lake. And they went in the middle of the lake, and it sunk. And the, the president of Fiji was stuck in the car. Thank God John got him out. But... Um, we were training at the facility, and this guy comes back. He's soaking wet. He's swearing and yelling, and it was like, okay, that, that's another crazy thing John did. That we was had, in the documentary. That was, was, okay, he's done, he's yeah. done it two days in a row, didn't he? Twice. I don't think it was two in a row, but he did it twice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what? It's so easy in hindsight, though, isn't it, with everything that happened, to, to be able to say, we should have done this, we should have done that. But, of course, you don't, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. No, none of us do. So it's very, yeah. it's very difficult. It's interesting to hear you talk about the world of pro wrestling and the, the dangers, the long-term sufferings that you can have as, if you commit to life as a professional wrestler. I know you work backstage now as a producer yeah. and that involves storylines and choreography and, and a whole host of things. Mm -hmm. Do you think that your experiences having been difficult for you over your life are important having somebody like you to guide the next generation and make them fully aware of what it is that they're getting into when they start you know i i don't like to preach to anybody so i i usually don't talk to them about that i, I usually only talk about it in interviews because um the one question i always get is if you're a kid and uh, growing up what advice would you give them and my first thing is know what you're getting into, and know what the long-term effects are. Because if you get into pro wrestling, your quality of life when you're done most likely won't be good. And I, I'm not trying to scare anybody away. I just want them to think about what alternative they have besides wrestling. Mm. Do they have a second avenue in case they don't make it? Or if they do make it and they get injured, they have something to fall back on. So... I guess what I want kids to do is I want them to think about something else other than that that would make them successful so that they don't have to be feel like they're stuck in that position or they have to be they're forced to continue to keep going and they never make it at all. You want to make sure they have something to fall back on. I know that you and Ben, your agent, work incredibly hard on the exit strategy from boxing mm. because boxing is often something that's born out of necessity as well. It's not necessarily something that a lot of fighters do out of choice. It's something that they do out of necessity. Yeah. But what you can do, of course, is shore up your future by planning ahead. Having a plan, I think so. I think it's important and people talk about it as if maybe a little bit negatively because they're, they're thinking about retirement 
when they're not really. They're just wanting to have a plan. So it can't it can't be to the point where a boxer has a career, boxing's over, and then you're like, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. You need to have a strategy as to what you're going to do for the rest of your life. What made you carry on into your 40s out of interest? I loved it. I, I loved uh, getting in the ring and performing. Uh, the money was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have six kids now, so, you know, I, I want to make sure they're taken care of, their colleges are taken care of, and, you know, when my day comes and I leave this planet, I want to have money set for all of them. So uh, it's not just about making a living for myself right now, which it still is, but it's about uh, making sure that uh, I can do something that I can give to my kids when my time comes. Because you've had the injuries and stuff that you've had, is there anything you think that the WWE could do better to kind of stop that from occurring to young guys who are wanting to wrestle? Maybe like a cutoff age or... or (laughs) That's not a bad idea, but what they have done very well this past 10 years, their wellness program, their drug program, they have doctors and trainers uh, with the athletes all the time their diets, the food they give them now. When I was there, we got pizza and sandwiches. Now they have a whole array of whatever they want. So they have curved toward the athlete more than they ever did. And it's going to make them have longer careers. You know, in my era, you know, a lot of guys would, we didn't have really a drug policy. So uh, we were taking pills and shooting steroids and, you know, there were just so many things that we could do back then that they can't do now. And I, I believe they're going to have longer careers, they're going to be healthier, and they will live longer. Mm-hmm. We we have, a, we have a bad reputation of, per capita, more wrestlers die mm-hmm. than any other sport, mm-hmm. younger, younger age. Yeah. I think even they said uh, the average age is 52 for pro wrestlers, so... And I'm 51, so you know it's it makes you open your eyes and say, "Whoa, this is something was wrong," and there was something wrong, and it it had a lot to do with, geez, in the 80s and early 90s, they were wrestling seven days a week, twice on Saturday and Sunday. Wow! So that's that's nine matches a week, every day, all year long. Um, when I got there, it was you know five days a week. Now they. Um, if an athlete doesn't feel up to par, they can call in sick. They can take a week off. There's just a lot more options for the athlete now. If they're really in trouble and they need a break, they can take a six-month break so and still get paid. So it, it's it's different now than it was, and I commend Vince McMahon on that. Yeah, fantastic. Kurt, that's all we've got time for. Um, thank you so much for your time coming in thank to you. see us. Really appreciate it. Uh, a fascinating episode. Uh, remember BT Sport, that new deal with WWE this year for 2020. And of course, TKO, uh, season two underway. Massive thanks to Kurt Angle. Thank you at home for listening as well. We'll see you as always in seven days time. You've been listening to TKO on Joe.